I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 15. And I would like to read one of the most puzzling paragraphs in the entire New Testament. Matthew 15, 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. But Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she pled. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. This is so unlike our Lord. He seems to be playing the part of the priest and the Levite rather than the good Samaritan in the story that he told. He told a story once about a man who came to his friend's house at midnight and rapped on the door and kept pleading for help from his friend and Finally, the friend reluctantly uh, got out of bed and helped him, and Jesus' comment is that God's not like that. He's, he's not like that at all. He responds with alacrity to, uh, to our requests. And then Jesus told another story about an unjust judge and uh, a woman who pled her case before him uh, repeatedly, and he, he didn't, didn't listen. She couldn't get his ear, and finally she wore him down by her persistent uh, pleading. And uh, Jesus said, God isn't like that either. If even an unjust judge will eventually respond to uh, someone's pleas, how much more will our Heavenly Father respond to someone who asks of him? And yet here a woman comes in desperate need, pleading for her child, and our Lord turns a deaf ear to her requests. And not only that, he calls her a dog. Well, let's see if we can make some sense out of this uh, out of this passage. Matthew tells us that Jesus left Galilee and moved into uh, Phoenicia, the region around Tyre and, and Sidon, which means he not only left Galilee, he left Israel, went into Gentile country. This is the region that was known back then as Syro or Syrian Phoenicia, in contrast to Libyan Phoenicia, which was in, on the coast of North Africa. The Phoenicians were uh, Canaanites, part of the aboriginal uh, culture there in, in Canaan, noted for their trading and, and colonizing. By uh, this time, they had circumnavigated the uh, continent of Africa. They'd gone almost everywhere you could go in those days in, in ships. They were a very powerful, affluent people until the time of Alexander the Great. And when Alexander conquered Tyre, he passed on to them his Greek culture, and so they were more Greek than they were Middle East in their thinking and their culture and their language, very sophisticated, highly cultured, educated, uh, affluent people, but uh, terribly decadent. 
Uh, we know from uh, their own writings, as well as from the comments of others, that they were involved in almost every kind of illicit sexual activity. Even the Romans couldn't stand them. You may remember from your classes in Western civilization, uh, a Roman senator by the name of Cato, who went all over Rome, chalking on walls, Carthago est delendo, Carthage must be destroyed. And the reason he was so insistent is because they were so immoral. They were even worse than the Romans, and you know what the Romans were like in that particular period of, of, their, uh, of their history. And though by the time of Jesus, the Carthaginians were uh, less powerful and affluent, their immorality remained. So the question comes to mind, why would Jesus move there? Why would he move out of Israel into this, uh, into this pagan culture? It would be like moving to the north beach of uh, San Francisco. I'm reminded of C.T. Studd's little poem, Some Want to Live Within the Sound of Church or Chapel Bell. I want to build a rescue house within a yard of hell. Phoenicia was hell's little half acre. And uh, that's where our Lord chose to reside for a time. We know that Herod was trying to kill him. We know that uh, whatever popularity he had achieved during his ministry was beginning to wane. Uh, was beginning to wane. The uh, religious officials in Jerusalem were seeking his death. He had a warrant out for his arrest. He didn't have long to live. He knew that within less than a year he would be dead. And his attention shifted from evangelizing in the region around his hometown in Galilee to training the apostles. As you read the Gospels, you'll observe that he is spending less and less time in public ministry and more and more time with the Twelve because he's equipping them to carry the light of the Gospel to the Gentiles. And I believe he moved to this region as a part of that training program. He wanted them in proximity with, with the world. He wanted them to see what the world was really like. Mark tells us, uh, and Matthew also, that his popularity uh, had spread throughout Syria. And this, uh, this region that we describe as, as Syrophoenicia encompassed modern-day Lebanon and, and Syria to the north of, of Israel. His popularity had spread throughout that, that region. People had been bringing their friends who were demon-possessed and who were sick and at the point of death to Jesus in the land of Israel to be healed. Now Jesus goes there into uh, this, uh, this outlandish uh, part of his world. And they, his popularity has reached that, that region, and so they begin to seek him out. And that's why this woman came. She had heard of his reputation, and she came for help. Matthew describes her as a Canaanite. That is, she was a part of this Canaanite culture. She was a Phoenician, Hamitic in her background, a descendant of Ham. Mark says she was a Greek, which is interesting. Would tell us that she had bought into Greek culture. So she spoke Greek, was probably educated. The, the Greeks, in contrast to all other people at that time, educated their women. I like to envision her as a, a sort of modern, uh, with it, streetwise uh, woman, uh, perhaps very fashionably dressed. The Phoenicians were known for their colorful dress, their name comes from the word for purple, which was descriptive of the, the garb that, that uh, they wore, and uh, perhaps a single mother. 
But more importantly, she had bought into Greek religion. And Greek religion, believe it or not, was primarily demon worship. Uh, we think of the Greeks as uh, wise and wonderful and uh, thoughtful about the world and insightful into uh, life and things, and, and there is that element to Greek thought. You think of people like Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and, and Thucydides and those two famous Greek tailors, Euripides, we Mendides, and, uh, and, and, and we think of them as extremely uh, wise and wonderful people and but they worshipped demons, believe it or not, they did. As a matter of fact, our word demon comes from the Greek word for deity, daimonion. It's even used that way in the, uh, in the New Testament, in, in, in the story and Acts of Jesus' debate with the Areopagi, the philosophers at Athens. They say after the debate, this man is proclaiming strange demons. Most of our translations uh, translate with deities or gods, but it's the word daimonio, demons. If you were to go to Delphi in those days to get your fortune told, it wouldn't read your palm. They talked to this young woman that they called, they described as the Pythoness, and sat on a little tripod, and, and you told her you wanted your, your fortune told. She would bend over a hole in the ground, and they either burn hashish or pot or something down in there, and she would inhale the fumes, and she would go into a trance and pass out. She'd begin to speak, and this deep bass voice would come out from, from within her, and, and she would tell you your, your fortune. It's the sort of thing the Greeks were into, all sorts of occult activities, and this woman was a part of that, that culture, and that may be why her daughter was demon-possessed. Now, we don't know how old this woman was. She's never called a child. She's simply referred to as a daughter. She may have been a... This is a word that's often used for adult uh, women, daughters. And so she may have been an adult who herself became involved in these occult activities because of her mother's involvement. We simply don't know how she got involved. But as the text put, puts it, she was badly demonized. That is, she was thoroughly under the control of the demon world. Cruelly uh, demon-possessed is the way some of the translations uh, put it. This woman was desperate. And probably guilt-ridden. You'll notice her request. Help me. That's not only the cry of a mother's heart, you see, but it's also has to do with the way she was looking at this problem. This was her problem. And she may have passed on to this, uh, this young woman her preoccupation with the, with the spirit world. Her dabbling in occult things had gotten her daughter involved. And, and as a result, she had come under the dominion of of demons, and so she cries out for help. Lord Jesus, she said, "Help me." The, the title that that she uses for Jesus is significant. She describes him as the Son of David, which you would not expect that title from a pagan. It's a thoroughly Jewish term. The Jews knew that their Messiah, their king, would be a son of David, who would someday come and sit on the throne and reign forever. Uh, in 2 Samuel 7, there was a promise uh, given to David. You can read it for yourself this afternoon. David was told that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. It wasn't Solomon, he died. It wasn't Rehoboam or Abijah or Asa or Jehoshaphat or Jehoram or any of the other descendants of David. They all died. 
But the promise in 2 Samuel is that someday someone will come and sit on the throne and his authority will remain. He'll abide forever. That was Israel's king. That's the one they were looking for. Their anointed one, their Messiah. And she adopted that title for herself. She laid claim to his kingship. Here's a pagan woman who's very imprecise in her theology, probably all mixed up. A lot of confusion in her mind between... uh, between truth and error, she had a lot of occult ideas as well as a lot of truth. But she clearly understood that Jesus, was, though he was the king of Israel, was her master as well. And uh, she came to him looking for help. As a matter of fact, she didn't give up. She makes a terrible pest of herself. Now, you can picture the situation. Jesus and the disciples were in the house. They'd rented a house there perhaps and... They were gathered having a Bible study and they were listening to the Lord and, and, and they were trying to gain as much information as they could. And this loud, abrasive woman is standing out in the front yard shouting at the top of her lungs, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. And uh, both Matthew and Mark indicate that she kept it up perhaps all day, shouting at the top of her lungs. The odd thing is that Jesus totally ignores her. He shuns her. He doesn't, apparently didn't look at her. He doesn't talk to her. He doesn't hear her, her pleas. He turns a cold shoulder to her. He turns his back on her. And he preoccupies himself with the uh, apostles. The apostles' reaction is, send her away. How much longer are we going to have to put up with this, Lord? She's distracting us. How, you know, how can I take notes? How can I think through what you're trying to say when this woman is shouting at the top of her lungs out in the front yard? Send her away. She's bothering us. And what the Lord says to her doesn't follow at all. If, if you think your way through the passage, his answer doesn't logically follow the the statement that they make. You would expect him to say one of two things. Either, all right, I'll send her away. She is a pest. Or, no, you're wrong. We should not send her away. We should meet her need. What he says to the disciples is, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, apparently, he is, he's answering some unspoken question that they have. Aren't you sent to the lost sheep of Israel? Do you want to put up with this woman any longer? Send her along so... We can spend our time together. We're part. We're, we're some of the lost sheep of Israel. We're, we're part of God's flock. Now, what Jesus said was true. He was acting on the basis of principle. The fact that he was uh, temporarily ignoring her was not because he was indifferent to her need or because uh, he had some kind of uh, preoccupation with his Jewishness, nor was it out of whim or or simple caprice, it was because of principle. Paul points out that Jesus was the minister to the circumcision. John says he came unto his own people, that is, to the Jewish people. He was sent to minister to Israel. No question about that. And the main burden of his ministry was to Israel, the people of God. But here and there, there there are hints that there's something more afoot. For example, when Simeon, Simeon was the one that took Jesus in his arms when 
Mary brought him to the temple to be dedicated, and he gathered this little child up to, into his arms. And he said, this one was sent for the glory of Israel, and everyone would agree. And then he said, he was also sent as a light to the Gentiles. And Jesus himself said, there are others not of this flock that belong to me. That's in John 10. He was concerned about those out there that had not been reached. And and now and again in his ministry, he's touching the lives of Gentiles. The Samaritan woman is a good example. John tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria because he, he wasn't a bigot. Most Jews in that day would not travel through Samaria if they were going from Jerusalem to Galilee in the north or traveling from Galilee south to Jerusalem. They would bypass Samaria because the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half Jewish and half pagan, and most Jews wouldn't have anything to do with them, wouldn't talk to them, had no associations with them, so they wouldn't pass through Samaria. They went a long, circuitous route. They'd cross the Jordan River at the fords of Jordan near Jericho, go north through the, what, what was called Perea then, and then cross the Jordan again. A lot of trouble. They went an extra distance, and they took a lot of trouble having to ford the river twice just so they wouldn't have to talk to Samaritans. Jesus said, we've got to go through Samaria. He went through Samaria, and he contacted the woman of Samaria and uh, led her uh, into a relationship with him. A little bit later, he talks to the, uh, to the centurion, the Roman centurion, who was a, an outsider, a Gentile. Then we have this woman, this Phoenician woman, and then much later, just before Jesus dies, a contingent of Greeks came from the Mediterranean. Some little colony of Greeks over on the coast of the Mediterranean, what Isaiah would call the coastlands, sent a delegation to Jesus to find out if he was the one that they should look for. And when he was told that, they, that Greeks had come seeking him, Jesus said, Now is the Son of God manifest. So there's something more afoot than, than simple ministry to, to the lost sheep of Israel. There are little indications that God's vision is greater than just the nation that we call Israel. He wanted the whole world to hear the gospel. And these touches on lives, these simple touches, were God's way of indicating that, that God had more in store than just, just the reclamation of, of Israel. He wanted to get the light of the gospel out to the whole world. When the Great Commission came shortly after our Lord's ascension, Jesus said to the disciples, when the Spirit is come, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So here's a graphic illustration in this woman, this, this dear, uh, this desperate Canaanite woman of what God intends to do. You, you understand this woman was a Canaanite. These were the people that were dispossessed 1,500 years ago by Joshua. These were the people that were considered irredeemably sinful. And Jesus wants to gather this woman in and by so doing show the, the, the apostles that Jesus loves all the children of the world. Red, yellow, black, white, they are all precious in his sight. problem with the Disciples is that they were sexist and they were bigots and they were narrow-minded and provincial in their thinking and God wants to expand their vision and enlarge their thinking about, about the world. Well, right after Jesus says this, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. This woman bursts in the room. 
I, I would love to have been there. This is a woman that will not take no for a negative. She's out in the front yard shouting. The Lord ignores her. She bursts right into this all-male gathering, which would be something virtually unheard of in those days. She intrudes into the living room where they're sitting at the feet of Jesus, studying the Bible. And she falls at his feet and she says, Lord, have mercy on me. She continues to shout. And notice what Jesus says to her. The children have to be fed first. It's not right to take the children's food and give it to dogs. Now, coming out of the Lord's mouth, that, that's shocking. It doesn't sound like our Lord at all. It's not the kind of person he was. He doesn't call people dogs. And yet that was the term that Jews used of the Gentiles, as you know. Now, it's easy to identify the children. He's referring to Israel, first of all, and then specifically the apostles. These were the most proximate children of God, those that, that he was teaching. The Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs, and they were thinking of these huge mutts that, uh, that ranged uh, throughout Palestine in packs. They were like our coyotes, except larger. And uh, they would steal chickens and kill lambs, and, and they were predators, and everyone was afraid of them. They were scavengers, and uh, they, they were emblematic of pariahs, people that are on the outside. And the Jews, who felt they were on the inside, referred to the Gentiles, who were on the outside, as dogs. It was a pejorative term. That sound right in our Lord's mouth, and it wouldn't sound right. And as a matter of fact, that's not the word that he uses. I don't know why the translations don't reflect what our Lord said. He uses a diminutive form of the word for dogs, and it would be better translated puppies. You don't take the food out of the children's mouth and feed it to puppies. Talking about household pets. And you know the Egyptians kept cats in their houses. We, we found They found mummified bodies of cats buried with their owners, and the Romans did the same thing with dogs. They found uh, little dogs in the layers of ash in Pompeii and they know they kept pets, just as we do. They were real small dogs, and it's that that Jesus is referring to. What he says is true. He says, you feed the children first. It's not right to take what ought to go into the children's mouth and give it to the dogs. And suppose you uh, mothers go home today, and your husbands and your children, are they're going to cook the meal. I know that's dreaming, but, you know, just, just pretend. And... Uh, they, they throw some great big steaks on the, uh, on the barbecue, and when, it's, when you're ready to eat dinner, the, the dogs gather under the table, and they feed the steak to the dogs, and you sit there hungry. You would say what Jesus said. That's not right. You know, at least we've got to feed the children, if not me. It's not right to take what belongs to the children and, and give it to the dogs. And notice her answer. Luther says, was not hers a master stroke? She snares Christ in his own words. I think that our Lord at that point just threw his head back and guffawed. It's a very witty response. You understand? He says to her, it's not right to take what belongs to the children and give it to the little puppies. And that's true. He wanted to feed the apostles first. Israel was intended to be 
a light to the Gentiles. That was their call. So Israel had to be fed first. The gospel had to go to them first. And then those outside could be fed. And she recognizes the truth of that principle. She says, it's all right. It's all right to feed the children first. But then it's time to feed the puppies. Do you see what she's saying? I own the fact, she said, that I'm a, I'm a weary little pup. That's all right. I'm the master's puppy. Do you notice how she puts it? Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs, the puppies eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She took Jesus' words and turned them around and skewered him with them. And I'm sure he laughed at that point. He loved it. And notice his response. He says, your faith is great. Your faith is great. There are only two people in the Gospels of whom that's said, as far as I've been able to find out. You may have found some other instances, but there are only two people of whom it was said they had great faith. One is the Roman centurion, who was a Gentile. Jesus said of him, I have not even found faith like this in all of Israel. And this woman, this Canaanite woman. You know what he said of the disciples? You know what his constant rebuke was of the disciples? You don't have much faith. But he said of this woman in her crazy mixed up condition with with her upside down theology and her very imprecise thinking about a lot of things in life, and yet she realized she was a very tired, weary little puppy who needed help and she could come to him and he would meet that need. And it's that kind of audacious Tenacious faith that God loves and rewards. That's what delights him. That's what gets his attention. That's why Hebrews says if you want to come to to God, you you just need to believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that, that diligently seek him. And that's what gets his attention. Oh, he loves that. It doesn't make any difference what your background is, how confused you may be in your thinking, how outlandish or outrageous you may be in your behavior. What What God is looking for is faith. Jesus said, when I come back, when the Son of Man comes back, will I find faith on the earth? Not do you have your theology all straight. You know, do you you understand everything? Do you have your your tables all laid out so that you know exactly what's going to happen when? But will I find faith? That's what he's looking for. And that's what he saw in this this desperate woman. She was like uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel. I won't let you go till you bless me. She shouted at him all day. And, and, and let me assure you, our Lord would never have let her walk away without meeting her need. This was for the apostles that he did all of this. This was a training session. So he leaves her out on the front yard, yelling her head off all day, seemingly indifferent. And then he draws her in and he meets her need. He shows mercy upon her. He sets her daughter free from, from demon possession. And the disciples say, Jesus loves the little puppies of the world. Red, yellow, black, white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And later they could sing, Jesus died for all the children. All the children in the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. No one's too far out, too far gone. Now, a couple of things come to mind as I think about this passage. One is that no one's beyond the love of Jesus. 
like this woman. You may have worshipped false gods or you may have worshipped no gods at all. You may yourself have been mixed up in occult activities and you may be one weary little puppy, but you're his puppy and he loves you. The other thing I would say is that something is always prodding us toward Jesus. He's always wooing us, prodding, pushing, and shoving, and pulling, and, and drawing us into contact with him. We can't get away from him. You know the story of Saul, who was breathing out threatenings against Christians, burying in his pocket papers that gave him the right to kill Christians, imprison them, and, and he's on his way up to Damascus to put uh, Christians in jail, and he's arrested on the spot by Jesus, who says to him, Hey, Paul, Real hard to kick against the goat, isn't it? God was goading Paul and probing and prodding. Couldn't get away from it. Maybe your sin. Like the man in the temple that Jesus described who, who couldn't do anything but fall on his knees and pray, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Maybe your guilt that's prodding you to Jesus. Or maybe your weariness. You're just tired. You tried everything. Nothing works any longer. G.K. Chesterton said that weariness comes not when we're tired of doing evil, but when we're tired of doing the good things in life, when the good life no longer satisfies. That's real weariness. And uh, God will use that, that weariness to draw you to him. As George MacDonald uh, put it in, in, a, in poetic form, small successes, disappointments, small nature, weather, failure, or sore fall, shame, anxiety, bitterness, and smarts, loneliness by weary loss of zest, the rags, the husks, the hunger quest, drive home the weary to the Father's breast. Or it may be like this, uh, this woman, her sick child. Uh, We've had some real tragedies this past week, the death of little Ben Kovalt and, and the sickness of the Falk uh, baby who's just desperately ill. And, and uh, nothing strikes a mother or father's heart like the sickness of a child. And, and I'm convinced that God himself does not strike these children down with strictness, with sickness. But uh, for whatever reason, he may, he may permit it. And what this does is is draw us to him. That's, we're always coming across things that we can't handle, and that's one. When we run out of any resource, and we don't know what to do, and no one has any answers, uh, death is, as we put it, uh, irreversible. What do we do when we stand before a, a small casket? And our hearts are breaking. There's nothing we can do to bring that person back, and no word will comfort. But uh, there's, one, there's one who will. There's one who understands. There's one who can comfort. Uh, I, I think it was Ruth Bell Graham that put it this way. God's strong arm extends to selfish bullies, willful, crude, endures the self-deceived, ignores the rude, forbears with murderers, incest does not quell. And when my arm would sweep them all to hell, God draws them to his heart. 
God's strong arm in love applies the rod, employs the lash, impairs a face, and beauty strikes a gash, denies the hungry, wounds a mother's breast. And while I raise my fist, beseech, protest, he draws me to his heart. I would say uh, to you mothers that the best thing you can do for your child and in terms of the hurts and pains of being a mother is to bring those pains to the Lord Jesus. Bring them to him. He understands. He knows. He's the only one that can comfort. He's the Father of mercy and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our distress. There's no comfort like the comfort that comes from him. Paul describes it as everlasting consolation. It may be these major hurts that we experience, our children on drugs or, or with an alcohol problem or in their confusion and rebellion against spiritual things or against authority or whatever it may be. These are the big hurts in life. Just bring them to Jesus. When you run out of words, he's got a word of comfort for you. And then even the small hurts. Some of you I know had some expectations this morning as mothers. You thought somebody would leave a card on the table and everybody forgot. And that hurts. But even the little hurts, he understands. And he comforts. And I just want to tell you again, Jesus loves the weary little puppies. Jesus loves the children of the world. All the children of the world. Red, yellow, black, white. You're precious in His sight. Let's pray. What comfort, Lord, You supply. Words so often fail us. We, uh, we have no words of wisdom. Counselors, pastors, psychiatrists, friends have no no word to say. But uh, when we come to you, we find you're, you're present. You're there. There's no place that uh, you're, you're not hiding from us. There's no place where we can't reach you and, and touch you and unburden ourselves to you. And we thank you that when we come and we leave our burden with you, then our burden becomes light. You slip under the yoke with us. You bear that burden. And you give us rest. Help us to believe that you're there and that you're a rewarder of those who seek you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.